Welcome to Designers Right, a podcast about the role of designers in the climate crisis, the inequality crisis, the migrant crisis, and all the other worldwide disasters we are facing at the moment. How can we think in different ways about design? And what narratives do we need to change in order to get there? What does it mean to be a designer in the context of today's challenges? Designers Write put out an open call for designers to write an essay addressing these questions. In total, we make three podcasts in which we talk with designers about their text. Also, we will address the design sector as a whole uh, to talk about its place in the world at the moment. The essays will be published on our website, designerswrite.org, and the direct links to the text can be found in the show notes, as well as links to other sources and resources. And this is episode one. My name is Ainuk Tan and I will be your moderator. So in this episode, we will talk to Clara de Beljak and Silvio Lorusso. And Clara, I want to start with you. Can you introduce yourself shortly? Um, hello, my name is Clara de Beljak. Uh, I'm Slovenian-American and I'm a designer, researcher and artist. My themes are often um, dealing with uh, identity in the new digital sphere, um, sexual identity also, and how it's um, morphing through the um, sort of changing mediums through which we meet and uh, build relationships. Uh, first, also, we, we asked you both to uh, take a sound with you that, that represents you in some sort of way, uh, represents you as a person or represents you as a designer. Um, let's listen to your sound. Um, Clara, why did you? What are we? What are we hearing? And why did you choose this sound? Yeah, so it was it was a very interesting assignment to have to um, put together a ten second sound clip representing my practice, and it also made me um, introspect a little bit about what I'm actually dealing with. Um, and I feel like the re uh, the reason why I chose um, a traffic sounds at the beginning of the sound clip that you can hear with beeping of cars and um, yeah, just this honking and sort of congestion on the road is because sometimes it feels a little bit confusing to uh, combine so many different mediums, uh, which is this like research design and visual arts, um, as well as I like to work with video and documentary, for instance. Um, so I found that this represented this confusion of all of these different elements that I'm interested in but um, what is also true is that they do converge somehow and that there is like a sort of um, holistic set of themes that I'm interested in and that's why these traffic sounds uh, sort of converge into a really um, deep soulful and sort of unknown sound that does seem to have rhyme and re reason um, and there's a hawk screeching at the end, which I felt was a <laughs> great conclusion of the 10 second clip because it um, symbolized the, uh, the ultimate success of the overlap of all of my work somehow. My God. So, yes, <laughs> yes <laughs> great. A, That's a whole little story <laughs> behind it. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, 
I think that gives a good insight on, on how you think and how you, how you make. Silvio, um, tell me, who are you? Whoa, big, uh, big question. <laughs> Mostly But what do you do also? <laughs> let's, uh, let's try it once. Well, my name is Silvio Lorusso. Uh, I'm Italian. I'm based in Rotterdam. Uh, I'm a designer, um, artist, and uh, lately mostly busy writing. Uh, yeah, I would say a writer, but you know, it's like quite pretentious. Um, in the, I, I'm trained as a graphic designer. I've been working in, uh, uh, let's say, many fields of design, starting from graphic design, then moving a bit like to web design and coding, creative coding. Um, and in the last uh, uh, in the last year, I dedicated a lot of uh, time and uh, uh, mental energy to to uh, look in depth to the to the world of work, uh, and especially to the ways in which um, you know a certain entrepreneurial attitude reflects uh, uh, dynamics of precarity uh, and uh, um, yeah uh, less uh, less inspiring uh, understanding of work. In fact, like. Uh, The title of, uh, uh, of my first book is Entre Precariat, which is a sort of uh, portmanteau, uh, uh, a word that connects the, uh, the notion of entrepreneurship and uh, precarity. Also, you brought um, a sound. Let's listen to the sound. What are we hearing? So it's one of these uh, 70s toy that you mostly see in the movies with like a little mouth that jumps. Now you charge it and jumps. So uh, I use this in my daily uh, practice, like in a very uh, material way since I'm misophoniac. So I have like a very uh, sound isolated environment. So I, I don't let any sound, uh, any sound in. But sometimes, you know, I need like some sort of uh, connection to the uh, material world. So I, I play this thing to... Uh, have a material reminder and a, uh, yeah, sound reminder of something I can touch. Um, also, this kind of object uh, is very um, cinematographic in a way, something you see mostly in the movies. No, it's like uh, I rarely saw in uh, in real life, and I think it connects to my practice from the point of view of like suggesting this fictional world in the sense that. Uh, um, I would say that uh, in in the past and uh, like in the, in the last year, like my practice has characterized by this uh, uh, trying to connect uh, reality with expectations, you know, like to try to see how these two uh, two categories collapse. So, as I was saying, for example, with this idea um, very ambitious of entrepreneurship and then precarity, which is like the more Uh, concrete reality. And I think also my text in a certain way connects to this uh, expectation that then becomes reality and right. affects reality. Yes. We will talk about that later when we are also addressing your text. Um, first, I want to go to, to Clara. Um, you wrote a text and the title is The Theory of the Chrono Ghettos. Please, enlighten us. Um, yeah, so this is a uh, this is a sort of short text. It's actually a shortened version of a much longer text that you can find online, um, and it is dealing with the concept of the chrono ghettos. Um, it is written from the perspective of time, so it was a little uh, enlightened moment for me, perhaps, and. Uh, it's just talking about the struggles of. Um, 
uh, quantifying time as we do in today's society and what are the um, what are the effects basically on on us and uh, a big part of that is being stuck in the chrono ghettos which is essentially um, working constantly to buy time for ourselves to to live basically and there's also this argument that um, working for uh, an hour-by-hour hour pay rate is actually the modern-day um, form of slavery. And I really wanted to address that because I do feel that me and um, most of my colleagues are actually like stuck in this constant race of trying to um, trying to survive somehow, and we're all running out of time. We all feel stressed and um, and worried, and I don't think that it's necessary to live life in such a way. And I think this is where it really came from. You chose also in your text to write from the persona of time, if I may say so. Yes. Um, why did you choose that perspective? Yeah, I mean, I can't really say that it was a rational choice at all. It uh, Somehow it was just this, I was struck. <laughs> so <laughs> there's not many ways that it really wasn't pre-calculated. I wasn't trying to be playful. It just um, came upon me somehow, <laughs> even though it's not the best answer. But No, really it doesn't matter. I mean, that's how it goes, right? Can you read a little uh, fragment from your from your text? Um, okay, so. Temporal deprivation is built into the organ organizational frame of every advanced society. The entire meta-structure of industrial and post-industrial societies is saturated with chronometric discrimination. When I speak of chronometric discrimination, I mean that I am more valuable in the hands of some than in the hands of others. Consequently, a phenomenon arises that I have come to call the chrono-ghettos. Chrono-ghettos are metaphysical spaces where members of your people are trapped in the constant present, unable to imagine the concept of temporal sovereignty. The ability to choose how you spend me is a privilege and a luxury, one that those trapped in the chrono-ghettos do not possess. Liberty of choice and temporal sovereignty represent a type of freedom and its presence is intrinsically connected with financial resources and positioning within your society. In this context, I have become a political entity. I, too, am one of the victims here. Mechanization has forced me into being a neutral agent, which I am not. I am not a precondition to be used as an exchange unit to commodify labor and nature. One of your thinkers, Carl, mentioned this as well. I become mechanically modulated, compressed, colonized, controlled, and regulated for the purpose of expanding economic growth and prosperity. In your present society, I am a function of pure mechanism. I am sliced into segments and, just like you, have become enslaved. In fact, the injustice runs even deeper as those at the top of your power pyramids enslave you in my name. They say it is me who micromanages each second of your waking life. They made me an uncompromising and evil entity. Thank you. Um, again, you can read the whole text on designersright.org. Um, you talk about um, this notion of, of chronometric discrimination, that time is more valuable in the hands of some than in the hands of others. Um, can you elaborate on this notion of chronometric discrimination? 
Mm. I mean, it's it's uh, really quite simple. Basically, it's just like how certain people, when they work, um, get paid six euros per hour, and certain people, when they work, certain CEOs, for instance, can get paid up to thousands of euros per hour. Actually, if they're at the head of like a very uh, well functioning and positioned organization, and this shows that um, there is chronometric discrimination everywhere and it affects us intensely. And this can also be seen in, um, for instance, people who work on project per project basis and get paid larger amounts for a smaller amount of time. And uh, it really makes you question what are the elements that make some people's time so much more valuable and how did it come to be like this? And it also seems like we're somehow stuck in this type of division. Um, and even though I think we've been collectively, as a society, dealing with this question for um, uh, 10, maybe even hundreds of years, but it seems to be getting worse and worse, so statistics show. So <clears throat> I think it's a really essential question that seems to be impossible to address as... Um, it's really going in the opposite direction of what the majority of us would want, really. And it's um, seldom looked at as in, like, how much is your time worth? But I think that's the essential question here. Can design affect this notion of chrono-ghettos? To what extent? I personally, I think that it can. But just because I come from a position of like a really sort of radical and utopian um, viewpoint in which I do think that there's really ways that we can collectively as communities, as a society, um, rethink um, a lot of these seemingly design mistakes in how we relate to resources, for instance, how we relate to time, for instance. Is, is, that, is that a design practice in, in itself? That is time designed? Um, I believe yes. Yes, I think it is not like a, uh, it's not an official practice yet, but I do think that all of these aspects of society can be molded by um, positive design practices that, should somehow uh, look at the holistic picture. And also I believe that if we at any point in the future manage to um, uh, envision a society that is better functioning and more equal and more um, uh, inclusive and stimulating of the well-being of its members, I think designers are going to be on the forefront of this movement. One of the people that um, had the role of a text curator was um, Florian Kramer. He's a, a teacher and a researcher at the Willem de Koning Academie. And he specializes in the field of visual cultures and autonomous practices. He's also a design critic. And he has a question for you. When I now speak in the conventional tone of a critic or a text curator, I think I'm already doing this as an injustice because I'm speaking in a neutral, prosaic tone. So I'm forcing this essay into a discourse and a form that is not its own form. Or you could also say, if I use the language of this essay, I'm forcing it into a morpho ghetto. Um, and on top of that, I'm also putting it into a chrono ghetto, because I'm limiting my commentary to the three minutes that I've been assigned. And we the producers and you as the listeners of this podcast are doing 
the same because this episode will comply to its scheduled time. We are therefore, and I'm quoting Clara Debliac's essay, trapped in a structurally imposed temporal chain, end quote. I said that I'm forcing Clara Debeliak's text into a form ghetto because this essay is not written in a conventional style of a paper or an article, but it is written as a piece of theory fiction. In this essay, time itself speaks in the grammatical first person. I'm just quoting the first sentence. In your human perception, I have existed since the Big Bang, end quote. So not only is this a piece of speculative theory, It is also a piece of post-human theory where the I that speaks is actually a non-human entity, time. Despite all its speculative and playful character, the essay gives a very precise account of the various regimes of time in the human sphere. Cultural, social, economic, quantitative. And all this is summed up with just the same linguistic precision in the term chronoghettos. This I should say, is a term which this essay invents and also explains. What I like most about Clara Debeliak's essay is the precision of its theory fiction. Its speculative form is never an excuse or artistic license for vagueness, but just on the contrary, a means of sharpening its core argument and completing it. The essay ends as a manifesto with a moral and political appeal. I quote, You, so the human, must release me, time, and yourself simultaneously. Okay, but if we read this text as a design essay or design manifesto, can design actually accomplish this? Doesn't this essay itself suggest that this is not possible because it remains in its own chrono ghetto of 774 words and with its author now submitting to the chrono ghetto of this podcast recording? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Like, as we exist in the context in which we exist, in this, you know, moment in time, of course, these um, walls that we've built up around us still stand. Um, I do think that it's possible for different aspects of design to try to lower these walls or make them more porous, more flexible. And um, I was actually, yeah, thinking about what could, what could be the ways in which we could do that. And one just totally weird idea was to have, to develop, to design a series of watches, for instance, that measured um, qualitatively time rather than quantitatively based on, for instance, temperature levels or like dopamine levels. And then that you know, instead of having, like, one unit of time that's universal for all of us, like the second or the hour, um, these units could become stretch or um, morph based on how we are experiencing time, which would also add, like, a really kind of, like, flexy element to how we live. And maybe this is something that's necessary in today's society that seems extremely rigid and it's um and i think really needs a little bit of this yes thank you thank you we're going to the the next uh, speaker which is uh, yuri Pruis. uh yuri is one of the um founders of uh, of the of the platform and the initiators also uh yuri can you introduce yourself first shortly 
Yeah, sure. <clears throat> I'm uh, Juri Pruis. I'm uh, I'm not a designer. I am a writer. I am also a filmmaker. And most of the films that I make or try to make are usually around the topic of marginalization, oppression, inequality, stuff like that. So it's themes like that that really uh, interest me, especially in the Dutch in Dutch society, which sometimes seems quite blind to themes like that. Great, thank you. And um, you will read a historical text um, in relation to the to the theme of the podcast, which is, of course, these notions of uh, the climate crisis, the migration crisis. Huh? What should design do in the context of the world today? And you selected a text um, in uh, that 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 corresponds with uh, with the theme. Um, which text is it? Uh, what is the title? And who is the writer? Yeah, so it's actually a text that was written by my father, Simon Marie Pruis. He was a design criti critic uh, himself. Uh, he died in 1980 when I was two years old. So most of the things that I know about him are actually uh, things that he wrote, uh, usually about design, also about architecture and all sorts of other stuff. Um, he was quite influential in his day, uh, had a lot of um, ideas that were quite controversial in, the, in his time. Uh, which are now more or less mainstream. Uh, and he was one of the first people in the Dutch culture to actually say, well, design is part of the problem. And um, he was invited by the Stichting Industriele Vormgeving to write a book, actually uh, more of like a, 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 a nota, as it was called, uh, to give a kind of like a vision to uh, the Stichting Industriele Vormgeving, which was kind of like a well, not, not exactly a union, but kind of an organization for, for designers. And he wrote something really, well, activist, you could say. Um, because what he said in his, in his nota was, well, as a designer, you have a responsibility towards society and the world, and you have to take that seriously. And he was maybe the first person in the Dutch design sector to say, designers are destroying the natural habitat and are oppressing other people who have to produce these things that we use. Um, so that book never became the vision document for the Stichting Industriele Vormgeving. Uh, he basically got kind of like kicked out. There was a lawsuit, there was all sorts of stuff, and eventually he published the book as a standalone publication. Um, and it's called Dingen, Form and Mensen, and it's quite hard to translate that in English properly because it's kind of like a... Um, uh, uh, well, a pun, basically. It means things shape people, but it also translates as things shapes people. We must gradually begin to recognize that both advertising and design, to the extent that these activities do nothing but continuously make the chair we sit on old-fashioned, are the mortal enemies of our civilization. The designers of our brave new world do little more than recreate everything, every day, if possible, and sell us the illusion that everything has to be completely renewed every moment. They want to tell us, and themselves, that both the completely renewed detergent and the completely renewed style of Olivetti typewriters make us happy, while behind us garbage dumps grow higher, ditches start to smell more and more pungent, and raw materials become scarcer. It is gradually becoming criminal that we are helping to create a disposable civilization by designing, producing, buying and selling ever more new chairs and automobiles. The, world, the word innovator should quickly become a term of abuse, as long as it does not apply to the renewal of man and society, 
but only to new forms and new products that have no other function than to stun and blind people to those situations that really are due for renewal. Differentiation and individualization will have to make way for greater uniformity, durability and timelessness. In other words, we will have to intervene in our goods production system. Thank you, Yuri. That was a beautiful text. Clara or Silvio, do you have a, a reply on, on this or uh, an opinion? Yeah, um, Yuri, I'm curious to, uh, to ask you maybe uh, if uh, something uh, has changed in your opinion, considering that, uh, let's say, the environmental question had become uh, central, you must say even like the most central of our, our issue and maybe like uh, uh, even um, some sort of uh, refrain that uh, is used also to, to let's say, um, display a certain conscience. So now that the things that your father has rightly pointed out uh, a few decades ago are central, what are like the, uh, the, 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 the stakes? Yeah, what he what he tried to what he tried to do in the book is actually see the uh, cut the design world into sections basically and say like well we we have the designer and we have the the industrials and we have the salespeople and we have marketing and stuff like that and describe from all of these different view, view, viewpoints what is what what how the design world functions at that point and also what's wrong basically. Um, and he comes to that conclusion that that the designer is actually one of the people who are most wrong in that respect. Um, I don't think that that actually reson resonates too much uh, right now, and that actually also ties in nicely with your text, uh, which will come up, um, because the idea that a designer is somehow a very important and central figure in uh, in in this in this realm of problems that's actually a problem in itself. Um, I, I, he, he rails against, for instance, also aestheticizing too much. He's actually a very f functional kind of person. Uh, and he sees that aestheticizing design is actually one of the problems with, uh, with the design sector. And you can see that that's still the same, actually. Even the people who are focused on finding examples of uh, ways to solve the problems that design causes do that in an aestheticized way. So it's usually leading by example, by making beautiful beautiful installations in ex ex exhibitions with biogases bio and, and, and algaes and stuff like that to show like, well, this is the way forward. But they aestheticize it in a way that it's actually just an example of the right direction instead of actually moving in that direction. So I think, yes, we're talking about it a lot, but are we actually changing things? And the things that he actually says says about the design sector and the role of the designer in that is, is actually saying he's actually saying that the designer cannot solve it. It's actually uh, a political problem. It's an ideolo ideological problem, and that has to come first, and then the designer has to follow. And I think that's still a problem. Designers think still think that they are. They have to lead, but they actually have to follow, and 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 it's actually also up to pol politicians to change the system, and of course up to us all. <laughs> well, then maybe we should invite a politician next time, if designers should follow. I mean, that's of course a, a good question. Can design solve uh, have this these kind of uh, a notion of newness, of pollution, of inequality. Um, I think they are, uh, I mean, this, this is why we're here eh, at the table together, to see what, to what extent design can do that. 
that's a nice bridge to you, uh, Silvio. Um, you wrote a text t- entitled Against Design Synthesis. Um, can you uh, tell us what your text is about? Yeah, sure. Um, is it okay if I read uh, uh, my excerpt for, uh, first and then we somehow try to, to elaborate on that? So I'm going to read uh, this uh, small excerpt from the text. In 1973, sci-fi author and aeronautical engineer Robert Heinlein made one of his characters, uh, Lazarus Long, assert that specialization is for insects. Many designers and design theorists would agree, but only on the condition that design would provide the foundation of general activity. It is uh, thus worth looking at the larger context of the quote, which I will now read. A human being should be able to change a diaper plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, die gallantly. Specialization is for insects. Uh, In the text, I emphasize the part about design, uh, designing a building. Um, In this list, designing is not the prism uh, of generalism, but simply one of its manifestations. Here, design uh, does not provide synthesis. Uh, It is not presented as a placeholder for human activity at large. Instead, it is humbly connected to a specific artifact. Design is a part, not the whole. Design can be presented as a meta-knowledge, but it can also be conceived as a meta-ignorance that eludes the narrow presence of expertise. According to human-centered design uh, guru uh, Don Norman, the trouble with experts is that they know too much and that they think the same way other experts think. Designers instead know nothing, and that's exactly why they're brilliant. This is a common idea. Designers can be candid, devoid of preconceptions, free from the past. However, designerly candidness is itself a preconception which simply displaces what is known, believed, or assumed. The risk is evident. Instead of developing a productive non-knowledge, designers might just turn uh, a blind eye to their own biases. As a result, what they don't know they know might act in the world in ways they can determine. The past will still cast its invisible shadow on the present. Thank you, Silvio. Um, what what is your text uh, in general about? Yeah, um, I think uh, well, it's it's good to start by saying that uh, uh, you know um, there has been historically an attempt to give um, a specific position to the designer in the uh, let's say hierarchy of problem solving and connects very directly to uh, what Yuri was saying. Um, people like Viktor Papanek, but other uh, designers, designer activists, design theorists, suggested that the designer would be at the center of the process of not only solving a problem, but really formulating the problem. Uh, and so uh, that, that's why the, the word synthesis come from, from the fact that Papanek would call a designer a synthesis, someone who would uh, sum up the knowledge uh, of all other experts involved. Uh, in the text, um, I try to um, question a bit this idea. Uh, I'm skeptical towards this idea of design synthesis by, uh, from two perspectives. Uh, one has to do with really interpretation of the problem. I, do, I don't believe designers should and have 
uh, the epistemological capacities, the capacities to interpret uh, the, the, the voices of experts and non-experts. They cannot be at the center of this uh, formulation. And then there is a factual, uh, like a, a practical limit, which they simply are not at the center. Um, uh, a sociologist called uh, Seabright Mills in the 50s defined uh, uh, the, designers, uh, the designer, the man in the middle. Of course, was it before like the human being in the middle? Uh, and uh, it was like this, uh, by this formula was really um, trying to describe this kind of feeling of tension of being um, uh, in the middle of uh, other people's uh, uh, agendas and maybe a, con- a honest concern t- uh, towards the user, the so-called user, citizen, etc. Um, so I, I hope this uh, gives a mm. bit of more context yes, uh, about yes. the text. Yes. Um, and you also s- you also say you know you're talking about generalism and 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 specialism a lot in the text. Um, so so designers cannot be the problems the the, the the idea that designers are in the middle that the designers can formulate the problems and that they can solve the problems as well is a myth, or is the problem maybe itself? Um, well, the point uh, I would say um, regarding uh, generalism. Is that uh, is it a good uh, goal? Yes. Um, in the sense that uh, we uh, we want human beings to uh, develop their full capacity, not through one just uh, just one single activity like uh, working in a factory or even like uh, designing books or whatever. We want them to uh, realize themselves through the the wealth of uh, human knowledge and human possibility. This is like the empowering notion of generalism. Uh, the problem. Uh, connected to design when it comes to uh, the way design uh, approaches generalism is the fact that uh, design presented itself as the uh, the generalist uh, uh, practitioner at large. While it has a very, uh, let's say, narrow set of tools to interpret reality. Um, So all good for generalism, uh, but not by placing design as like this meta activity that encompasses uh, all of them. So by saying that, uh, uh, for example, writing a text is like a form of design. Mm-hmm. And and how should how should this notion of design you think um, um, change for the better, in your perception? Well, um, I believe that uh, the idea of what design is. Uh, I think design has to um, has to find has to root itself in certain uh, uh, form of specific uh, methodologies and ways to uh, approach the, the 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 world at large. So it has to uh, regain some sort of categorization of uh, its own yes. practice. Yes, regain some sort of categorization of their own practice. What does that? concretely mean can you can you name an example of that so what then then how should design maybe categorize itself back or something like that yeah uh, well um, an example i can give i think has to do with um, uh, for example with graphic design yes Uh, i think of graphic graphic design um, if you see uh, how graphic design expresses uh, itself nowadays, specifically in countries where there is like a substrate for experimentalism, like for example the Netherlands, um, designers, graphic designers, had uh, the chance and the ability to uh, sort of uh, escape their medium, right, and yeah. to do installations, performances, yeah. uh, like Clara's doing. 
<laughs> with the with the honking of the of the of the sounds and everything, all these mediums, right? Okay, I'm just yeah. making a little. I mean, of, yeah, uh, as Clara did, but uh, she's not alone. I mean, no, like I also, uh, yes. I also uh, derive from yeah. uh, from that, uh, mm-hmm. of course, liberatory attempt to look at other media. Um, yes. But there is one notion which we risk missing uh, when, let's say, uh, we uh, we sort of jump from media to media, mm-hmm. and it's the notion of uh, craft. So that's the, the stability which uh, I think like uh, design can offer. So um, a craft is not just a skill, no, it's something more. It's like um, something that connects you to other people, to a community of practice, so to speak. So that's the rooting that uh, I, I uh, sort of suggest. Yeah, so design, design. in terms of, of craft, and the craft is also embedded in a sort of communal idea. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Well, then, then <laughs> that that brings us a lot further, I think. Um, so um, there is also a text curator who we also asked to, um, or that selected basically the the text we are discussing in this podcast. And one of them is also Marianne van uh, van Helvert, and she has a question for you. Um, by the way, Marianne is a textile uh, designer uh, and a researcher, amongst other things. And uh, let's uh, let's listen to what uh, she has to say about your text. And I think there's also a question. Hi, Anouk. Hi, Silvio. This is Marianne van Helvert, one of the curators of the text for this podcast series. I've been asked to say something about Silvio LaRusso's text, Against Design Synthesis. This text spoke to me in many ways, as I'm thinking a lot about this design synthesis, as Silvio calls it. As he writes, design becomes a cultural phenomenon in constant restructuring, and it aspires to be the whole that exceeds the sum of its parts. I see this in the tendency in the contemporary design field to celebrate designers as some sort of universal problem solvers and to celebrate design as a technocratic answer to our every problem, from climate change to refugees crossing the borders of fortress Europe, and from socioeconomic inequality to plastic in the ocean. I think it's part of a very modern industrial capitalist ideology to celebrate the ubiquity of design in human history and to see design as the very thing that makes us human that made us evolve to where we are now, and that will even save us from a future apocalypse. Your text is quite abstract, and I find myself imagining a context for all those definitions and concepts, like cross-disciplinarity, design hyper-connectivity, specialization, generalism, genericity, meta-knowledge and meta-ignorance, which I thought was quite a clever word. I think this is a text that, as it is now, a very selective group of design thinkers might be interested in. And that leads me to a thought that might be a bit controversial in the design field. But here we go. Maybe designers themselves are the only ones claiming the universality of design in problem solving, while the rest of the world is just busy doing their own work. Has design synthesis, as you call it, Silvio, has it perhaps come to stand for the existential crisis of designers themselves in a time when designing new stuff for consumer society has obviously become problematic and the designer's role has needed to change? 
Are designers legitimizing their existence by placing design above all other systems and professions as the method of all methods to solve problems? And to go even further, are we maybe creating a catch-22 where in trying to design away our problems, we keep designing more problems to design away in the future as a perfect solution to keep the capitalist machine going and growing in the face of all the calls for degrowth? These are some of the questions that your text inspired me to consider, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts about them. Uh, Silvio, what is your uh, reply? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, extremely thankful because I think uh, uh, there, there couldn't uh, have been like a better um, summing up of, um, uh, let's say, the, the, the logical or like, let's, say, let, let's say the extreme conclusion of the text. Um, what, I, what I want to say to Marianne is that the text come exactly, uh, derive exactly from um, like, let's say, a skepticism uh, about this very possibility, as I was saying a bit before, of, um, uh, let's say, uh, presenting the, the, the designer as this uh, uh, synthesis. In fact, it's part of a larger project that uh, hopefully will become like more concrete in the future, but it will be called What Design Can Do or Design and Disillusion. So it's all about this uh, uh, self-legitimization in the front of... Uh, in um, in, in the respect of a world uh, that somehow uses design but doesn't see the same um, heroic uh, figure that we think we are. So you might say, why uh, is it worth now to, to write a text like this? Why, why, uh, why is it worth to rally against design synthesis? Uh, the problem that I see, and that's the, my whole motivation to write the text, is because... Uh, the way um, uh, the self-perception of designers is built is still based on this idea of synthesis, of like uh, uh, modern problem solvers, or uh, let's say, um, let's say, uh, hubristic, um, um, uh, yeah, how, how can we call it? Like, uh, uh, like main interpreters of the word uh, ills. Uh, so uh, the problem, the, the 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 crowd that I'm speaking of, like are designers and designer uh, design educators. So yes, I speak to that crowd, to my crowd of colleagues or friends. Uh, yes, but but I mean, what what Marianne is saying is of course very interesting. I mean, isn't design had the the the, the notion that design are uh, or uh, or the assumption that the design are the problem solvers of the world? Isn't that also the arrogance of the design field itself? And isn't with that designers creating their own problem that they can just solve i mean I, I mean i'm sorry but i just almost cannot think of design being so obsolete at this moment obsolete like unnecessary you find it unnecessary or well you know you get this meta uh, conversation about what designers are or what they what they uh, are supposed to be or what they are according to you and your colleagues um, but that is what Marianne is also addressing. Eh? While the rest of the world is just busy with going to work or doing other stuff, so isn't this also a? Isn't your text also a symbol of the of the design crisis that we are facing, the identity crisis? Absolutely, it, absolutely, mm -hmm. it comes from that. But you cannot deny that uh, uh, these people like uh, see themselves as practicing a design and studying designs are, are still using the mental tools 
of the 70s or, or, or of the 80s. So uh, you might say, yeah, let's, uh, uh, who cares uh, about designers anymore? And I, I, a lot of designers themselves see, uh, see it this way. In fact, they are jumping into contemporary art or other, uh, let's say, words in which like, they don't have this limits. But I'm still concerned about that field because it's like the, the field that I come from. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I inhabit that field. So that, that's why I'm still concerned. Yeah. What about skipping the whole field? What about like renaming design or something? You know, because it, again, I feel that we're in this meta conversation and I'm just like, what, 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 is, what is design actually? I'm totally confused also by everything. So I'm also like, maybe we should just call it craft from now on. Isn't design also this, this conceptualizing of craft? Uh, well, it's 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 a it's. I think um, there are like a, a few things that are uh, that are to consider here. Um, a, a definition that I like of design is like um, uh, creating like uh, favorable conditions. Now, by through design, like so, uh, uh, design is optimistic by nature. So it's a technique and a methodology to create favorable. Con- Condition. Craft is a bit more complicated because, like, it involves. Uh, it's more humble. No, it involves a tradition. Very often, it involves um, a notion of expertise that go beyond the uh, the singular, mm-hmm. uh, and it also emphasizes like the relationship with the material at hand. Whatever that is, uh, like, craft uh, is not necessarily you know connected to wood or metal. Um, so. Uh, those are the aspects that, uh, let's say, connects to this because um, craft doesn't offer the synthesis again in the single practitioner. But uh, to, to 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 be a good craft person, uh, you have to, uh, let's say, uh, enter in a hierarchical relationship with other craft people. Uh, you have to learn from them. You have to maybe teach them when you reach a certain status. So. Um, that's the, the value of craft, but I, I wouldn't re- rename the field also because it's uh, it's impossible. I mean, it's like it's not something that can happen. I don't have. Well, the Clara is a very utopian uh, yeah. thinker. You just addressed eh, yourself. So, what about what about uh, the, the 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 what should we do with this whole design uh, problem solving, seeing themselves as problem solver, a sort of arrogance also maybe. I I read a little bit in your text of designers or what designers think they are themselves. What should design be in, in a utopian uh, world, um, or an utopian vision? Thank you uh, for the question. Perhaps before answering it, I would like to pose Silvio a question um, based on your talk of craftsmanship and perhaps one of the like applied ways of going back to a more tangible way of practicing design. Because I wonder, isn't craftsmanship quite... Um, uh, quite a synonym to specialization, which you actually write against in your text. So I wonder how these two things come together. Very fair question. Well, um, I mean, the defense of generalism doesn't mean that, uh, um, let's say, a a branch uh, of specialization shouldn't happen at all. It's not that you don't specialize. Uh, It's not that uh, you, you don't develop like particular uh, skills. It's just that you have the chance to devote yourself not to just that single activity. And that's what designers aspire because, you know, they call themselves very often, uh, you know, wild cards or something like this. 
The point is that uh, shouldn't be the designer to be the wild card. Uh, sh- shouldn't be like every human being to a certain extent should be able to reshape their environment, to redesign their environment, to recraft uh, their environment. So um, there is, uh, the contra- I think the contradiction is only uh, apparent. Let's say. Does that answer your question? Yes, partially. Yes, I like this. Um, I like this idea of giving the power of the wild card and the power of redesigning your environment to um, individuals because I do think that there is like a um, a general lack of feeling of power, basically a feeling of empowerment, and I think that's um, sort of what we should strive through, uh, strive towards um, in the holistic utopian radical redesigning of our societies <laughs> is actually giving more power to individuals um, in shaping and influencing their environment. And to go also back to um, the text that uh, was read before the historical text regarding um, politicians leading, for instance, the way to redesigning societies, I think this is not uh, um a really important point anymore. I think that throughout the last uh, years, we've witnessed again and again how um, political changes rarely have influence on the actual feeling of empowerment and real-time uh, effects on the lives of um, of civilians. And I think the big problem nowadays is that, uh, in fact, yeah, that people, civilians, must... Uh, take control over the design of their environment. Uh, And I think uh, the way that this can be done is actually through um, more uh, interdisciplinary crews of um, builders, basically, um, of conceptual builders. uh, Crews of builders? What what do you mean by that? (laughs) Yeah, Like interdisciplinary crews, like conceptual crews of builders so that you have even more merging between different crafts and different aspects of design. What do you say? Yeah. Rather than less. Yeah, all right, all right. But but I think that's an important point you make, right? uh, So to, to give the individuals or people in society... Uh, more power to to influence their own surroundment. Basically, that's the point you make. So then we can see maybe, because I also want to go to a certain solution or to a certain direction about what the role of the designers can be in this total difficult situation where we're in. Let's let's say it mildly, but that's, I think, an understatement. Uh, because we're in a crisis, a design crisis. That is very clear from this conversation, I believe. But um, so then... I'm working towards the notion of what is a desi- what is the role of the designer then, and what I pick up from your um, uh, what you just said is is why maybe a designer should be a facilitator. Is it, is that is that a facilitator to give individuals more power around their surroundings? So maybe design relationships, design communities. What about that? Yeah, I mean, essentially how I look at designers is as facilitators. So that was also one of the questions that I had wanted to pose to Silvio because you did say that you think that the um, people should be given the um, space to uh, form their own relationships between different objects without design being the facilitator. And so what I was wondering is, um, yeah, 
because actually my definition of a designer is exactly that as a facilitator as a um, you know person or community that uh, enables these relations to kind of um, to unfold within like certain parameters basically so I wonder if um, if you believe that the designers should not be the facilitators how do you see um, I think the future kind of that's that's a great word uh, that of facilitating I I, uh, I just see um, like uh, the, the the risk of going again into uh, the, the problem I, I mean uh, um, I cannot suggest um, like what a designer can be because I think uh, what's the, the the role in the future because I think we still haven't uh, pretty much defined um, in the current condition, like what what uh, place designers occupy in uh, you, you speak often about like wanting to be concrete okay let's be concrete um we imagine like uh, this uh, designer like solving problems but very often they are like just asked to be uh, to execute uh, like the the the, the wills uh, of uh, of like the client so um we have to consider first that uh, that aspect of uh, uh, of subservience of ancillarity of the designer. Uh, I'm just wondering what Yuri. What what how how would you define the the role of the designer? The occupation of a designer is intrinsically entangled with the capitalist ways of production. So a designer, as as I would define it. Uh, would actually be irrelevant, non-existent in a society that is not capitalist. So, and whatever, really? whatever kind of way of that's, no, that's I think that's a very um, heavy point you're making. I, I, when you look at non-capitalist societies, they don't have designers; they design. It's not an occupation; it's something that comes with other occupations. Yeah, but maybe then the problem is the notion of design itself. Absolutely. I'm very much inspired by, for instance, by uh, utopian societies that are really like, 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 they, like they tried to do in the in the 70s in the United States and the whole Earth catalog, for instance, that kind of tried to log all the information that is available to rebuild stuff or build stuff yourself without actually having to buy anything in a store. Um, I think we have to consider stuff like that on, a, but then on a global scale. I think we have to look at at the solutions uh, on a, on a very much of a kind of like a local level uh, and export them and try to try to make sure that information about these things is is exported is globally available and that's actually one of the things that that inspires me from 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 the seventies is that that notion of free information uh, which actually also led indirectly to what to what we now call the internet um, is is. Is, is, is a way to do that. But of course, it failed because internet also became capitalized. Okay. Um, Sylvia, I just want to come back to you also because you also had, had a, a question, I think, for Clara uh, and, her, and uh, her text. Yeah. Maybe that, that can help us also further in this notion about what design or, or this question about what design is or do we need politicians with it or, you know, and that's... Well, anyway... You had a question. Yeah, uh, I had several. Um, but now, after like s trying to entangle a bit this conversation, I was like, um, 
captivated by this notion of um, uh, temp- temporal discrimination, let's say. And I think that's something that can, can, can connect to the, uh, to the social position of designer. And um, I see a paradox there. Uh, because like um, things like, uh, uh, for example, time banks, uh, the, 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 the four days uh, work week, all these attempts to, uh, let's say, equalize uh, the amount of uh, uh, output of profit per hour um, would deny, let's say, the professional um, affirmation of the designer in the sense that um, if a designer would start uh, get the same amount of money for one hour as like, uh, uh, I don't know, um, uh, the, the uh, typography worker, uh, that would uh, d- 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 defy the very definition of a professional, which is prestige plus major income. So uh, how do you, I mean, I understand the utopia, but um, uh, it's like, does design, uh, is not de- is designed not anymore like again like a profession in the sense of a prestigious role on, of society in this um, uh, let's say out of the chronoghetto uh, world or like w- what happens uh, to to design as a capitalist uh, embedded role and does it disappear um yeah i mean i think it does disappear to the capacity that we perceive it nowadays um uh, in the sense that uh, I think most of the um, potential solutions that we were talking about today had to do with um, localized solutions and also like uh, kind of deconstructing like the whole system of um, like knowledge production basically and product production. And I think in um, in that sense then, uh, we become a much more um, flexible society where people are not actually getting paid per per hour, where a four-day work week is not even a thing because it's actually not necessary because we do, like, naturally have enough resources on which to live um, and function as, like, smaller communities. Um, so, yeah, I do think that the role of the designers, we know it now, doesn't exist anymore. Everyone becomes designers in the sense that they have, like, uh, power to affect their immediate surroundings. Um, and maybe this is where our positions kind of overlap in the sense that, um, yeah, individuals are able to become the multifaceted humans that were mentioned in your text who are able to fulfill a lot of different roles um, based on the situation and what's needed within the um, uh, closer-knit community um, that is sort of organically built. Um, yeah. Yeah. As a designer, is it what we're trying to do, I think, is to start with the fundamentals of defining what a designer is. Isn't this the role of the designer to to restructure time, to restructure capitalism, to restructure politics? Isn't that the way we should start? Because uh, we're talking about these structures mostly, yeah? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, Would this be, I'm trying to have some alternatives for what design can be, not what it is now, but what it can can mean that maybe can can have 
also a contribution to, to the crisis we are in. Not a contribution, but a solution, maybe. Well, I mean, I think uh, I ap appreciate all the um, uh, attempt to, uh, again, like look in this, uh, uh, let's say, looking forward. But um, I want to insist uh, on one very simple point, which is like the role of the designer is not cho chosen by designers. Designers are like simply product, as Yuri was saying, of uh, uh, modern industrial capitalist configuration. There is no way out of this within uh, the, the design, of, uh, the, 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 the configuration of design. In the moment in which a designer attempts a change, like a change you were saying, like a political change, a designer is not anymore a designer. It's maybe an activist, uh, it's maybe a citizen, it's maybe a martyr, or uh, when it comes to uh, time, it's maybe uh, uh, doing, practicing asceticism. Um, yeah, well, I hope I pronounced it well. So that's um, the point I'm insisting in. In order to change itself, design should s somehow renounce to, to, to its own existence, like to, to, to become something else. So it's like the design cannot change the plan that determines design. It's uh, maybe not radical, not utopian, uh, but I, I think it's also not pessimistic as a way of seeing things. It's just like wearing two different pair of shoes. Yes, but you, then you say that is what design cannot be. It's it's a, it's a, it's part of something larger. But then, what can design then can do? Huh? Design can do what it does. Mm -hmm. As simple as that. Like um, serving the, the the ideas of like the the, the agenda of uh, not ugly and angry capitalists, but like. Um, uh, capitalism and any mode of production as an Im impersonal, invisible relation. No, it's not that uh, is the CEO the problem. Uh, it's like the combination, this uh, intertwined factor. Um, so yeah, it's not uh, a hope of hopeful consideration. But again, there is hope in the conflictual, the politics, and the antagonistic. But those are not uh, matter of design. They are not design matters. They are matter of like social reconfiguration. They shouldn't, as you said, they but, shouldn't but be But isn't designed. the designer, can't the designer be uh, 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 the inventor of a new social configuration? Yeah, but nobody will believe in it. Well, yes, Clara, I <laughs> as the big utopianist here, please. <laughs> yeah, actually, I must say that I, um, uh, that I, that I disagree. I do think that designers are in fact social reconfigurators and um, I do think that all of the uh, possible if utopian alternatives that I can think of or that people um, have thought of in the past are actually somehow flexibly designers. So I think that uh, definitely designers in their flexible definition, will be at the forefront of social reconfiguration. And I think it's important for everyone to feel like they can fill this role regardless of their um, uh, craftsman background. It's important that everyone joins, you know, links together and um, is part of the new design of the universe. Glada, thank you for that last uh, sentence. I think that's very hopeful. There's a lot to talk about. There is uh, a lot to solve or not to solve because designers shouldn't maybe be the problem solvers. Um, we will talk about this more uh, with other guests. 
So in episode 2, we will talk to Dirk Ossinga and Trang Ha, two designers who wrote two essays. Um, and with that, I want to thank you all for listening. Um, this was Designers Write episode 1. My name is Ainuk Tan, your moderator. And the Designers Write project is an initiative of Design Platform Rotterdam and curator Yuri Pruis. The text curators who selected texts are Aminata Cairo, Marianne van Hilvert and Florian Kramer. And the Designers Write team would like to thank BNO, which is the Association of Dutch Designers and Design Digger for distribution support. This project is supported by Creative Industries Fund NL. And you can, of course, check designersright.org to read the full essays of all six designers. Thank you for listening. See you next time.